Today, we are in Genesis 31. We've been, for those of you who are newer, we've been talking about gospel foundations, the first five books of the Bible, and we've been in the book of Genesis, and we've been talking about truths in the book of Genesis that really help us understand the gospel. The gospel doesn't begin in the New Testament. The gospel begins from the very beginning in Genesis as we see humankind fall into sin. We see a need for a Savior, for a Redeemer. God promises that, and then he begins working through this this one family, the family of Abraham, and that's what we're looking at, God's promises, his covenant promises to this uh, family that Abraham is the, the patriarch there, and we're looking at Abraham, we've looked at his son Isaac, and now we're looking at Jacob, Abraham's grandson. And last time we were looking at Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah, and the conflict that existed there. And then we came to verse 24. We ended, and this morning we're skipping over some passages, but let me just, let me just give you a little bit of a context. We're going to come back to these and refer to them this morning. I encourage you to read them on your own, uh, but we're going to be in, in chapter 31. But, but basically what happens, beginning in verse 25 of Genesis 30, the writer begins to tell us about how Jacob accumulated his wealth and how he became a very wealthy individual and then how in chapter 31 he needs to flee from his uncle, from Laban, and how he flees, kind of he deceives his his uncle and he and his family leave while Laban is away and then Laban uh, catches up with them, he pursues them with some other kinsmen. He believes that Jacob has taken some of his household idols. It wasn't Jacob who took them but Rachel who took them unbeknownst to Jacob. Laban is caught up with them. He's confronted Jacob. Jacob says, hey, look around, whatever you want. And Laban looks around, and he doesn't find anything. And that brings us to Genesis 31. And we're going to begin in verses 36, read through verse 42, as we look at this this idea of God and his gift of things. And encourage you to stand with me, if you're able, And we'll stand in honor of God as we read his word together. Genesis 31, beginning in verse 36. It says, Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods. Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night." There I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house, I served you for fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flocks, and you have changed my wages ten times. The God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let me pray for us.
Heavenly Father, we would ask your kindness upon us this morning. We pray that you would bestow upon us just your, your, your gentle peace. For those whose hearts are, are restless this morning as they think about different things going on in, in their life, I pray that you give them a sense of, of calm and peace and help us to think very carefully about your word, about your truth, about how to apply it in, in, your, in our lives. Forgive us of our, our failures and help us to pursue you diligently. We love you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. I had a friend in junior high and high school uh, who, who was not a very nice guy. In fact, using a, just a very precise theological term, he was kind of a jerk and uh, just not a very pleasant person to be around. He was, he, I think he felt that he was a very important person. He thought very highly of himself and he had this, this image of himself and he, he tried to protect it. And he, I think he tried to protect it by making other people seem less important. So he would he would tease people, he would say mean things about people, even people who were, had disadvantages or disabilities, difficult situations in life, he would make fun of, he'd make fun of his friends, he made fun of me at times and kind of made me feel uh, belittled. He used coarse language, I mean not just bad language, but he seemed to enjoy offending whoever he was with. Even if he was with other people who used bad language, he would try to make it like worse so that they'd be offended too and just not a pleasant person to be around in that sense either. He, he liked to highlight his own accomplishments, and so if there was something that he had done well, he kind of talked about it. If there's something that you had done well, he belittled it. Uh, kind of classes that he was good at or tests that he had done well on, he talked about how hard they were, how important they were. If there was a class you were good at and he wasn't, it wasn't all that of important of a class, and just, just not a very pleasant person to be around. Again, theologically speaking, kind of a jerk. He was also really wealthy. Uh, he had a lot of money, and he and his parents seemed to have this desire to let other people know how much money they had. I can remember in junior high, he showed up driving a moped one time, and we just, we just couldn't believe, these junior high boys, we couldn't believe that a person could, could go from one location to another in motorized fashion. It was just amazing to us that he had this, this resource. And in high school, he was the first guy to get a car, and not just a car, but a, a brand new SUV, black, beautiful SUV with this amazing sound system. And he pulled into the school parking lot one morning, and the stereos were just booming. And my friend and I, another friend and I, were watching him pull into the church parking lot or the school parking lot. And my friend, just kind of under his breath, said, That's just not right. <laughs> and I agreed with him. It just seemed wrong that a guy like that had so much stuff. And maybe you've felt the same way. There's someone in your life that you know or someone you're aware of, and you're like, man, why does that person have so much stuff? Why are they so wealthy? And I, I think it's an important theological question to wrestle with. Why, why does God decide to give some people so many resources? It's, it's an important thing to consider. And, and let me make it more specific. Not just why has God decided to make other people wealthy, but what I'd like us to think about today is why has God made me wealthy? Not me particularly, but all of them, 
individually? Why has God made us so wealthy? You say, well, Daniel, I'm not wealthy. Well, let's remember what we've talked about before. Specifically, we talked about this as we were going through the Gospel of Luke. Most of the people in this room, if not all of us, are wealthy. If you have $2,000 in assets, you're in the top half wealthiest people in the world. If you make over $40,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of all income earners in the world. And you make a little bit less than that or a lot more than that, you know, you can kind of do the math from there. But $40,000 puts you in the top 1%. If you have a top, even more than top 1%, I think it's like the top almost half percent of global income earners. If you have access this morning to food, clothing, if you live in a house or apartment, and if you have a a reasonably reliable means of transportation, you are in the top 15% wealthiest people in the world. 85% of the world doesn't have access to those things, and you most likely do. And so you are a, a wealthy individual. You are part of a wealthy family, and you need to understand that, that reality. And, and most of us have access to even more than those things. We have access to, to resources. We have access to information. We have the ability to access almost at any point in time information at, at our fingertips. We can access more information in a few seconds than people 100 years ago could access in their entire lifetimes. We have a wealth of information. We have a wealth of resources. We have health. Our ability to access things and to have access to things is, is amazing. It's phenomenal. And so let's, let's not deceive ourselves. When we encounter scriptures that talk about wealth, the warnings of wealth, our thoughts shouldn't be, well, I hope so-and-so is paying attention this morning because this is really what they need to hear. For most of us, as Scripture talks about wealth, the dangers of, the spiritual dangers of wealth, and the theological things to think about, it's talking, it's talking to us. And so the question, why does God give me things is an important question for us to consider. And you're going to hear all sorts of answers to that question, why does God give me things? Some people are going to say, well, God has given you things because he's, he's blessed you and you've done something good, and so God wants to give his people lots of things, and so that's why on the other end of the spectrum you're going to hear people say, well, things are evil and it's wrong to have a lot of possessions. And it's an important thing for us who have been given lots of wealth, and again, that is most, if not all of us in the room, it's an important thing for those of us who have been given lots of things to ask ourselves the theological question, why? Why has God said, here are a bunch of things and given them to us? What do we do in this culture? What do we do with them? Why has he done it? How do we think about that theologically? And as we look at this text, a text that really begins in chapter 30, verse 25. We're just looking at a smaller portion of this text. But as it begins in verse 25 of chapter 30 and continues all the way through chapter 31, we see this guy Jacob acquiring a lot of things. And over the last week or so as I've been thinking about this passage, one of the questions I've been asking myself is, is, 
Why? Why does God give Jacob a bunch of things? This guy is not a very nice guy. He's got some issues. Why does God give him so many things? And then why is the text so concerned that I know that God is giving him things? That's what I want us to wrestle with this morning. Why does God give Jacob things? And then we're going to kind of look at the theological issues surrounding Jacob's things and ask ourselves, why does God give me things? We're going to talk about two wrong ways to understand God's gift of things, and then we're going to look at the reason God does give us things. Thirdly, and what I say is not going to be some earth-shattering truth. You're not going to say, wow, Daniel, that's amazing. Never thought of that. But hopefully it will be encouraging for us as we think about God and his purpose in our life this morning. Here's the first thing that I want us to see from this text beginning in verse 36. First is this, God does not give us wealth because of our goodness. God does not ultimately give us wealth because of our moral goodness. Here's what Jacob says. He's, he's angry. Remember Laban has come and he's looked through all his stuff and Jacob says to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you've hotly pursued me? You've felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? And so Jacob, as he begins to get angry at Laban, his uncle who's followed him with all his kinsmen, caught up with him and demanded that Jacob give him back his things, Jacob says, okay, what'd you find, Laban? You rummaged through all my stuff. Look, things are scattered everywhere. i got to pick all this stuff up now. What, what have you found? Bring it out here. Let's see it. Oh, nothing? Why don't you set what you found here in front of all our kinsmen? So he's kind of inviting Laban to enter into this court proceeding with him, if you will. He says, why don't we let all our kinsmen see the stuff that you found, and then our kinsmen can decide between you and me who's in the right and who's in the wrong. And then Jacob says, here's my case. Let me lay out my case before you. I've worked for you for 20 years. And the relationship has not been great. I've worked hard for you. God's blessed you through me. And I've never taken any of your stuff. Whenever something bad happened to the things that I was in charge of, that I had stewardship of, I, I bore the cost myself. And Jacob is defending himself morally in front of Laban, in front of all their kinsmen who are there. And he's saying, in, in a sense, God has given me these things that you see around you your daughters, your grandchildren, these, these flocks, he's given them because I'm in the right morally. And certainly, as you go back into chapter 30 and earlier, you can see that there's, there's a certain amount of truth to what Jacob is saying in terms of how Laban has treated him. In fact, if you keep your finger there in uh, chapter 31, you go back to chapter 30, you, you certainly see that Laban has not treated Jacob correctly. Jacob tries to leave in verse 25, and he says, I want to go back to my own country. I kind of want to make a name for myself. I want to gain some wealth. I've worked for you. Now it's time for me to go. Laban says, no, I need you to stay. God's blessed me because of you. And what, what do you want? How can I pay you? And eventually they come to these terms. Laban would give Jacob the flock that are different colors. So if a there's this uh, white sheep, and it, it has uh, an offspring that's of a different color that Jacob would get the different colored offspring of the sheep and the goats. And uh, Laban agrees to that, and then Laban immediately goes and removes all of the flock that he'd promised to Jacob from that flock and takes him some three days journey away and has his son watch those animals so that Jacob can't have those animals and the animals that he does have will be less likely to produce offspring that have those different colors. 
So Laban is not treating Jacob rightly. Certainly Jacob's complaint is, is true in that sense. But at the same time, as you look at chapter 30, Jacob, and earlier, Jacob's not innocent, right? Jacob is not this, this pillar of moral goodness. I mean, we know what he did to his brother. We know what he did to his father. And he's, even as he interacts with Laban here, he, he tries through superstition and through various things to get this flock that he's been given to produce animals that will be best for him and bad for Laban. He, he does this weird thing with these sticks, trying to get the animals to produce uh, different colored offspring, which probably has absolutely no effect, but he's, it's something he's trying to make it, take advantage of Laban. He does selective breeding so that he gets the strong animals, Laban the weak ones. And so Jacob certainly doesn't have Laban's best interests at heart. And as you read through chapter 30, you see you have these two guys who are constantly trying to outsmart and outdo each other. You come to, and It's kind of funny, it's kind of sad, but as you come past the section that we're in, in chapter 31, you go to the end where Laban and Jacob are creating this treaty. Laban says in verse 48, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Verse 49, the Lord watch between you and me, and I love this line, when we are out of one another's sight. In other words, Laban is saying, I can't trust you, you can't trust me, may God watch between us when we're out of each other's sight. Here's the point. Jacob can certainly have his issues with Laban. But Jacob, as he looks around him and sees this, this wealth of flocks and the servants and his children, Jacob can't say that it's because of his own moral goodness that God has given him these things. We can't biblically look at this passage and say, well, I guess God gives things to people who are morally good because Jacob has his own issues. And we see this other places in Scripture as well, right? In Ecclesiastes 7.15, the preacher says, In my vain life I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. He says in Ecclesiastes 8.14, Ecclesiastes 8.14, there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. In other words, sometimes the righteous person seems to get what the wicked person deserves, and the wicked person seems to get what the righteous person deserves. This just seems like vanity, says the preacher. Psalms. Psalm 73, verse 3 says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here's the point. You cannot say that the presence of wealth in a person's life is a sign of God's condoning of their behavior. You cannot say that the presence of physical things in your life are a sign that you have lived a moral life. Last year, I read a biography of John Rockefeller called Titan, and there were just some, some interesting contradictions in Rockefeller's life. For example, on the one hand, he understood the corrosive effects of wealth on a person's life, and he would try to protect his kids from, from wealth, and even from understanding how wealthy they were. There's a, a funny story in there about how his son and another child are on a boat, and this, this child's his child's friend says, hey, why don't you buy a really nice boat? And his son says, gee whiz, who do you think we are, Vanderbilts? <laughs> he doesn't understand that he's the, the wealthiest kid in the world. 
So Rockefeller tries to protect his, his child from that. Yet at the same time, Rockefeller, Rockefeller had this weird understanding. He believed that the wealth that he acquired and the wealth that Standard Oil, his company acquired, was a sign of God's providential favor. That it was almost like the wealth itself validated the means he employed to get the wealth. There'd be times where people would, would try to criticize Standard Oil and he would, he would simply look, hey, God's blessed this. God's blessed this. The presence of wealth can deceive us into believing that God is giving it to us because of our morality. As we think about this story in its, in its redemptive context, here it is in the book of Genesis, dealing with God's covenant people, God giving this wealth. It is anti-gospel. It is anti-gospel to believe that God gives us wealth because we merit it, because of our morality. That's anti-gospel. Sometimes people view the wealth that they have as validation. It causes them to be self-righteous. You say, well, what are some signs? How can I know if, if I'm being self-righteous as I think about my wealth? Let me, let me just give you one. A lack of contentment with the things that you have because you believe you deserve other things is a sign of self-righteousness, a sign that you believe that you deserve more, you deserve wealth because of your goodness. You've merited it somehow. So if you look at what you have and then you look at someone else and you say, it's not right, there's something morally wrong with them having more than I do because of who I am, understand that is a sign of self-righteous arrogance and you don't understand why God gives things. Paul says this in Philippians, Philippians chapter 4 in verse 11, he says, not that I am speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, of facing abundance and need. And then he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And I I can do all things through him who strengthens me is in the context of, of having a lot or a little. I can do either way based upon my contentment in Christ. So, God does not ultimately give us wealth because of our moral goodness. Here's the second thing I want you to see. God does not ultimately give us wealth because of our brilliance or hard work. Here's what Jacob says next. He says, there I was, and he paints this this picture. He puts us there in this, this situation he was. There I was by day. The heat consumed me and the cold by night. My sleep fled from my eyes. Twenty years I've been in your house. I served you. I worked hard. Fourteen years for your two daughters and six for your flock. You've changed my wages ten times. Jacob is saying, I have been a, a hard worker. And as Jacob thinks back to his life, there are several things that he could have pointed to in terms of things that characterized his work. Jacob, we have seen, is, is a planner, right? He's a planner. You could also say he's a conniver. He's superstitious too, but he's, he's a planner. He thinks ahead and he, he tries to manipulate situations for his good. So he's, as you think about his work, he's a planner. He is a, he's a hard worker. Certainly, we look at him, he's a, he's a go-getter. He's a deceiver. He's a person who deceives to get what he wants. And he's also a person who is motivated by fear. Okay, so he plans, he's a hard worker, he is deceitful, he's motivated by fear. All those things characterize his work. And, by the way, 
we can all point to people in our life who have those characteristics and have used those characteristics to acquire things for themselves, right? So for example, we, we know people who are good planners and their planning has brought them financial stability. We know people who are hard workers and hard work has resulted in them having physical things. And I think we have to be very careful as we talk about why this, why this is and why it isn't a wrong understanding. What we're saying is wrong and what we're not saying is wrong. It is a biblical truth to say that, that hard work is a good thing, right? The scripture commends hard work. So for example, Proverbs 6, 6, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. One of the first verses I memorized as a child. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. A Proverbs 10, 4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 28, 19, whoever works his hand will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of, of poverty. A faithful man will abound with blessings. Proverbs 28, 20. Proverbs 28, 20. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastes, hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul says this in the New Testament, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. We hear that some among you are are walking in idleness, not busy at work, but busy buddies. Now, to such lazy people, Paul is saying, we commend and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly to earn their own living. Paul says, hey man, you need to work. It's a good thing to work hard, to provide for your, your living. That's a good thing. So, so why are we saying that God doesn't give us wealth because of our brilliance or hard work? Here's what we need to understand. Because of the nature of our hearts, that we are tempted to worship things other than God, we can take even good things and, and turn them into idols. And so even hard work itself that God has ordained that we engage in can, can become idolatrous. Listen to what Paul would say in Acts 20. In Acts 20, verse 35, Paul would reveal that the work, that the work is not the end of itself. In verse 35, in all things I've shown you, by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And so what's the purpose of this hard work? Well, that to help others. And remember the, Lord, the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. In Ephesians 4.28, he's talking to people who struggle with theft, and he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Now, why is the thief, as he puts off the old self and puts on Christ to work hard and to labor, and to work with his own hands? Well, it's not for the work's sake itself. That's not the ultimate reason. He says, do this so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. As we look at Scripture, we see that God doesn't give us wealth because of our brilliance or hard work. It's not the ultimate purpose for which he bestows blessing of, of things. And here's the danger. In our pride and our arrogance, we can begin to think, as we receive physical things, we can begin to think, we did it. 
So the first warning that we see about not believing that we have things because of our morality, what happens there is self-righteousness as we believe we've, we've merited something from God, we've done something, and God needs to give us something. Here, the danger is that we believe that we've, we've gotten it from God, but kind of also from ourselves. We've done it. It's also anti-gospel. Now, the poor have their own heart attitudes and temptations to sin they're going to have to struggle with. But as I've already said, most of us in this room aren't the poor. Globally speaking, throughout the history of the world speaking. There's other hard attitudes that we're going to have to struggle with. And one is, is arrogance and believing that God has given to us because we've earned it. And lacking compassion for others because we believe they don't deserve what we deserve. Several interesting studies I read about this past week about how wealth can cause us to be less compassionate toward others. One study talked about drivers coming to a four-way intersection, and this study found something very interesting. It found that people who drove luxury cars were far more likely to cut off other drivers and to kind of get in the way of other drivers at this four-way intersection. It didn't matter your gender, didn't matter the time of day, didn't matter how busy the intersection was, luxury drivers uh, seemed to have a sense of entitlement as they came to a four-way stop. Another study they talked about were people watching videos, and they found that the more wealthy you were, the less affected you were as you watched videos about children with cancer, not just emotionally, but, but physically as well. Like people with, um, with wealth, their heart rate didn't change as much as, as other people as they looked at these, these videos. Another study I found kind of interesting, it, it talked about two groups of people. And one group of people were told to consider their well-being, their financial stability in relationship to people who were better off than themselves. So first group, think about people who are better off than you. So kind of think of yourself as poorer. The other group was told to think about themselves in relationship to people who weren't doing as well as they were. So this group was told to think about how wealthy they were. So this group was to told, told to think about how wealthy they were. The first group was told to think about how poor they were. They were told to think about that, and they said, okay, the study's over. Now here's a big bowl of candy. Take whatever you like, and whatever you're done with, we're going to give to these children in another room who are doing another study. And here's, here's the funny thing they found. The people who were told to think about how wealthy they were took way more candy than the people who were told to think about how poor they were. They literally took candy from children, you know. As we think about wealth, as we think about wealth, here's what we need to know. There are some spiritual challenges to us. There is a dangerous temptation to believe that we've somehow merited it. We've earned it. It can cause arrogance and a hard heart toward others. Here's the third thing that I want us to see. God gives us temporary physical resources for an eternal spiritual purpose to magnify his name among all people. God gives us temporary physical things for an eternal spiritual purpose to magnify his name among all people. 
Jacob says this in verse 42, If God, the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction, the labor of my hands rebuked you last night. He's talking about how God appeared to Laban and said, hey, don't say anything good or bad to Jacob. Now, Jacob still doesn't get it. There are still some things he doesn't grasp, and we're going to see him continue to struggle there's going to be a time where I believe he, he comes to a reconciliation of some, some things, but he's not there yet. But he does grasp this truth. He does grasp the truth that God's sovereign hand is the hand that has given him things. And as I struggled with this passage this last week and a little bit before, as I thought about verse 42, I thought, Jacob is exactly right here. And so the question is, why? Why does God feel the need to give Jacob physical things. What, what's the purpose here? As we think about the story of Jacob in the redemptive context, in the context of gospel foundations, in context of the covenant that God has made with his grandfather Abraham, what's the purpose? What's the point of giving him physical things? So let me try to walk through this with you and, and, and see, if, see if this makes sense. God is sovereign over the gift of wealth. And God has promised to Abraham... In Genesis 12, he's promised Abraham blessing. So, for example, let me, let me just go ahead and read that. Genesis 12, the Lord says to Abraham, Go from your country to this land that I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. Catch that. You'll be a blessing. And at the end, he says, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, Abraham receives that promise, it's confirmed multiple times. Isaac receives that promise. Hey, Isaac, in you, you're continu I'm continuing this, this covenant I made with your father. In you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through your, through your descendants. And Jacob has received the same word. And Isaac and Jacob, as they talk about the covenant, they talk about it often in very physical terms. But God, as he reminds Jacob as to what the covenant is, he talks about this, this blessing that he is going to receive that the nations are going to be blessed through. Now, here's, here's what I think begins to happen in the story of the patriarchs. The giving of the physical things to the patriarchs is a picture for people. It's a picture of the blessings through God's promised people, the ultimate blessing that's going to happen through the Messiah. What's happening right now are these physical things are being given to God's covenant people so that they can bless other people who are around them. And there are example after, there are example, after example that I could give you from Genesis and, and beyond about this reality. So, for example... In this story, Genesis 30, 27, Laban says to, to Jacob, look, I've, I've learned that the Lord has blessed me financially because of you. Jacob recognizes this. Earlier in Genesis 14, Melchizedek has is, is talked about how God is blessed and Abraham gives Melchizedek, Abraham, the receiver of the covenant, gives Melchizedek blessing, physical blessing, Genesis 26, people say to Abraham, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. You're blessed of the Lord. Genesis 30, 30. Jacob says, you had little before I came. It's increased abundantly. Genesis 21, we see people saying this. Look, you, we've, we've, uh, we see that God is with you. Deal with us. Let us receive some of your prosperity. In Genesis 39, the story of Joseph, Potiphar makes... Joseph, an overseer, and he sees that the blessing of the Lord was on him, all that he had. Joseph in prison, the Lord is with him, and the Lord makes it succeed. In other words, 
as we look at, at, this, at, at the covenant people of God in this section of Scripture, we see that God has given them physical things as a picture of the blessings that people receive through God's promised people, ultimately through the Messiah. That's the gospel message that I believe is happening here. God gives his people these physical things, temporary physical resources for eternal spiritual purposes to magnify his name among all people. Here's to to magnify his name among the Gentiles. So, why has God given you and me physical things? Why does he give us stuff? I believe it's important, first of all, that we come to the, the same conclusions about these first two things in our life that we came to in the, in the life of Jacob. God doesn't give us physical things because we're morally better than others. And he hasn't given us things because we're more brilliant or better workers than, than, than other people. Certainly there's, there's means that God uses, but that's not the, the ultimate purpose in him giving us stuff. Why has he given us things? Why has he placed us in a culture where we would have access to more resources than, than any other culture in the history of humanity? God has given you and me, who live in North America, temporary physical stuff, resources, for an eternal, an eternal spiritual purpose so that you and I can magnify God's name among all the peoples. You say, well, how do we do that? Let me, just, let me just give you three thoughts. Three thoughts here. How is God magnified in the stuff he's given us? Number one, God is magnified, first of all, when we acknowledge that he is the source of all things. God is magnified, I believe, whenever we recognize that, that the things that we have come from God, that, that we're not the source of the things that we receive, but God himself is the source of the things we receive. Paul in Romans 11 would say this, For who has known the mind of God, who's been his counselor, who has given God a gift to him that he might be repaid? And I, I love how uh, the men who pray for our offering beforehand pray for it. Oftentimes we'll hear them say, Lord, we recognize that these are your things, and, and here's the portion of your things that we're giving back to you. In other words, not, we're not saying, God, um, we've really nailed this thing. We really were amazing this week at earning money. And here's a little something. Get yourself something nice, okay? Just, it's on us. That's just ludicrous thinking, right? What, is, what does Paul say? Look, for, from him and through him and to him are all things. There is nothing, it's crazy to think about, there is nothing in existence that God didn't bring into existence. No concept we've had that God didn't put there so that we have the ability to have that concept. So from, from thought to thing, everything is from God and, and for God. And so as we, as we want to magnify his name, we say, this is all from you. This is all you. You are the maker of all things. God is magnified when his people have that understanding of possessions. Secondly, he's magnified when we demonstrate joy in him by forsaking all our things. God is magnified when we demonstrate joy in him by forsaking our things. I wish I had more time to develop this. When I came to this part in first service, I said, I'm going to get it right in second service. I'm going to have more time by the time I get here. I was wrong. But um, listen to what David says in 1 Chronicles 29, the, the people and David. First Chronicles 29, I was reading this, this this last week, and it just really just jumped out at me as I thought about this passage as well. Verse 9, it says, The people rejoiced 
the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. Why did the people rejoice? Because they had given willingly. For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. And David also rejoiced greatly. And David blessed the Lord. And he, said, he talked about how everything is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You're exalted as head above all. And now we thank you. This is First Chronicles twenty-eight, thirteen, and now twenty-nine, thirteen. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of of your own we have given you. You see how God is magnified? God is magnified when we receive things from him and we find him more valuable and more precious than the things themselves. And as we give up our things and forsake our things, as we follow him, we find joy in him. In other words, God is magnified when we have stuff and God and we say, it, not all that fond of the stuff because we delight in God. God is magnified in that as we exalt him over our things. And here would be my caution to you this morning. If you are a person who claims to be a believer and you are a person who is stingy with your resources and does not find delight in getting rid of your stuff and find your joy in him, there are some serious questions you need to ask about your relationship with him. Demonstrate joy in him. By forsaking our things, that's one of the ways that he's magnified through the stuff he's given us, how his name is exalted among all people. When people see the generosity that believers have in comparison to the rest of the world and say there's something different there. And there are people in our culture today who claim the name of Christ and yet are incredibly stingy with their resources. That doesn't magnify God's name. And thirdly, there's so much more we can say here, but thirdly, God is magnified when we care for others with our things. We care for others with our things. 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. He talks about these, these poor believers in Macedonia. He says, They've overflowed in a wealth of, of generosity. They gave according to their means and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part and the relief of the saints, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What happens there? These Macedonian believers magnify the name of the Lord as they care for other people with the physical things that God has given them, and, and they're poor. They give beyond their ability. Brothers and sisters, the gospel message proclaims to us that we are completely powerless that we do not have the ability to be in relationship with God on the basis of our own merit. That there's nothing we have that allows us to come into relationship with God. The gospel proclaims that God provides that which we need in the person of Jesus Christ. That we turn from our own self-righteousness and place our trust in him. And the physical things that God has given us can be a beautiful picture of the gospel and a means by which the gospel is, is furthered. I want us to meditate on that. And I'm going to invite the men to, to come forward now to begin to pass out the communion. You guys can just go ahead and begin passing that out. And, and as they pass out the elements of, of communion, I'd encourage you to, to meditate upon that truth. How 
would God have you change and repent in terms of how you view the resources that he's given you? Do you recognize the surpassing value and beauty of Jesus Christ above all things, and is that being manifested in how you live your life in light of that gospel truth? Let me pray for us, and then I ask you to, to meditate on these things on your own. And then after we, we take communion, I'm going to ask you to stand. We'll pray the prayer of benediction, and, and you can and continue to, to worship the Lord today. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the good news of your son Jesus. We thank you for the, the, the gospel. We thank you for how you've given us, us things. We rejoice not in these things, but rejoice that you've placed us in a culture where you've given us a lot of things so that we can give them over to you, to use however you'd want for your glory. We thank you for this opportunity. Help us to be faithful in it. And now, Father, as we meditate upon your son Jesus, help us to see his beauty, his value, and bring to light areas of our hearts in which we're not worshiping you as we ought, specifically in this area. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.